Before we open God's Word, let's go to Him in prayer. Oh Lord our God, we praise You and thank You for this wonderful truth. We who were once dead are alive. We who were once lost have been found. Glory, hallelujah. Our King reigns and rules, has conquered all our enemies, and has subdued them under His feet. Lord Jesus, we thank You. You have saved us and brought us to Yourself. Come now and speak to us by Your Word, the ministry of Your Spirit, that we may know You and love You, that we may cling to You by faith. You may be honored in our hearts as we do so. We pray it, O Lord, for your glory, and so we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Open your Bibles to Exodus 32. I keep telling Morgan just to print Exodus 32 because I I never know quite where we're going to be. Our text tonight will be Exodus 32, verses 11 through 14, but I'm going to read from verse 1 so that we can get uh, a reminder of our context from a couple weeks ago. So this is the word of the Lord from Exodus 32, beginning in verse 1 down through 14. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves up together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, Take off the rings of gold that are in your ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it, and Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down, for your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it, and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now therefore let me alone, that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them, in order that I may make a great nation of you. But Moses implored the Lord his God, and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people, whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say, with evil intent did he bring them out to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self, and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven, and all this land that I have promised I will give to your offspring, and they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord 
relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. Amen. So far, the reading and hearing of God's holy and inspired word, may he add his blessing to it. Can God change his mind? Just so that you're clear, verse 14 says he did so. He relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing. Can, can God change his mind? You know, we do it all the time. We change our minds all the time. Sim- simple little things. You know, if, if, if you ever want to get lunch with me, chances are I'll ask that we meet across the street at Uncle Joe's. And I've already picked out what I'm going to have. I'm going to have the hamburger steak because it's available on the lunch special every day. But sometimes, sometimes, sometimes Raja can, can convince me to order something else if there's a good thing on the menu. If there's, if there's a special on the board that I haven't heard of before, if, if he's doing something in the kitchen that's new. So, sometimes I might change my mind for something other than the hamburger steak. Usually, you know, we... We change our minds, there's more significant things going on when we're aware of the fact that we're changing our minds. Little things don't register so much. Bigger things are, are more often what we think of. You know, the, the home inspection, on the building you've just made an offer on, when, when that home inspection comes back and the trouble is worth more than the house is worth, you might change your mind on that offer. You might pull that back. When the... Um, when the effects of, of your medical regimen are not what you expected or they're more intense than you hoped for, you might change your mind and go do something different, take another course. You may, um, you know, you have child after, after child and, and the choice of schooling works just well for them, but you finally have that strange one that, that pops up and it just doesn't work the same way for them and you have to change your schooling method. Not quite according to your plan, but you adjust and you change your mind. You change your plans. You know, we change our minds all the time. And I wrote it down wrong in my notes. God cannot change his mind. He cannot. He is incapable of change. The brother of the Lord in James 1 says, Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. And how does he describe our Father of lights, the one with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. And Paul tells us in Hebrews 13 that Jesus Christ, our Lord, is the same yesterday and today and forever. The Psalms, over and over again, how do they characterize our God as a rock? Situated, firmly set, immovable, immutable, unchangeable, He cannot change. He is, and He always will be, God. So what do we do with this passage? I really want you to set your mind up to understand how how out of the blue and strange verse 14 is supposed to be. How, How absolutely ungodly it is to suggest that that he changed his mind from a course of action he had set in place. And we're going to see that, that the scriptures aren't wrong. They're not mischaracterizing him. There's a right way to understand this word. But you ought to be caught off guard. 
Because essentially, just a straight reading of this text shows us that that God, in verse 10, declares one thing he's going to do. Moses picks up an 11 and, and sort of argues back to him another course of action in 11 through 13. And then in verse 14, it picks up and tells us that God changes his mind and relents from what he intended to do. So this is the question. If, if God cannot change, how can this be? We have to think about the word that's being used. We're going to kind of look at the end of it, and then we'll, we'll come back and work our way through the rest of the passage. But you have to think about the word that's used. And most, most translations say relent in verse 14. King James says Repent. One letter difference. It can mean other things. It's translated in different ways in other parts of Scripture. Think about 1 Samuel 15, where the Lord speaks and says, I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. It's another one of those confusing places where this word is used of God. That he established that, that Saul would be king and he put him in place and Samuel anointed him and he ruled and reigned according to God's plan and yet now God comes in 15 and says, I regret, I repent, I, I am relenting, I'm, I'm unsatisfied with this thing that I have done. And so he turns back what he had established. There's another time that we've seen this used not so long ago in Exodus in chapter 13. Not used of the Lord, but... Moses writes, when Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them by way of the land of the Philistines, although it was near. Remember, there, there was a straighter path to Canaan from Egypt by way of, of the sea border through the land of the Philistines, but it would have meant necessary war. Exodus thirteen seventeen, God said, lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. We're not going to go this way because we'll get into battles And the people will change their mind. They'll relent. They'll repent. They'll regret the direction that we've chosen to go. Now there's other places in Scripture where this word is used of God Himself. There's other places, plenty of other places, where it's used of people. It gets confusing when we have other, still other places in Scripture that state clearly that God is not capable of executing this particular word. I'll I'll read you a couple in a minute, but but I want you to try to set it up in your mind. We've got texts that say God repents, God relents, God regrets. And we have other texts that say He can't. 1 Samuel 15, not much further on than that first statement about regretting that He had made Saul king. It says, also the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret. That's not confusing at all. Is it? In a, in a matter of a dozen verses, God regret one thing, and, in the, and not much further later, God can't regret anything. Psalm 110 makes it clear. Speaking of the Lord and His decrees, it says, The Lord has sworn and will not change His mind. That in all the things that ever come to pass, God has decreed them to be just so, and they will always be just so, for He will not change His mind. It's the doctrine of the immutability of God that He cannot change. And and so it is applied to all of of the actions that He takes. 
So, again, how are we to understand this passage in, in Exodus 32? Is it that, that God suggested he would do something that would wind up being sinful and Moses convinced him of this and so he, to translate it a different way, repents of his intention? Is God just fickle and capricious? Is he just sort of at a whim decides to change his mind? The wind blew this direction and God decided he'd go another way. Is it that Moses has so much power and control over Yahweh that that he can utter three verses worth of ink and and the, the mind of God is changed in a whole new direction? Is this how powerful Moses, this mediator, is? Is it that God was forgetting to be kind and compassionate? And Moses remembered to be kind and compassionate. And he reminded God that he should be kind and compassionate and merciful. And so when the Lord hears his argument, he says, you know, you're right. I, I forgot about being that way toward my people. We, we fight this in our own lives too. Maybe sometimes we want God to change his mind. You know, why hasn't God reversed that thing that he gave to you? That hard providence that he's handed you? Why hasn't he changed his mind? Haven't you asked him to? Haven't you asked him to ease your pain and slow down the turmoil and the trial and the difficulty? Haven't you asked him, why hasn't he relented? Why hasn't he repented of this horrible thing that's been brought into your life? And into world, why why has he not changed your circumstances? H- haven't you prayed enough? Why will God not relent? It's certainly true of this text, and I think we can say it's true of our lives and our circumstances as well. God cannot change His mind but he gives an opportunity for Moses to plead for mercy. I'll confess, it it is hard to see. It's hard to understand. Relent. Repent. You know, we don't think about it in this way, in the midst of a narrative text, but it should be understood here as an anthropomorphism. That is, God is taking a word that does not describe him, that is something he cannot do, but describes us. And that often we change our minds. We switch gears and we move a different direction than we originally intended. God takes this word that's designed to describe us and he uses it to help us understand him. Such that John Mackey can say, If we, even in the words of Scripture, if we are to speak of God at all, we must use human terms regarding Him. You know, God doesn't have a body. But how often in the Psalms do you read that He's used His strong arm to do something? We read it in the text. It's God's way of describing to us the way He is. Not in any 
perfect, comprehensive way, but in a way that our small little grasshopper brains can understand at least a little bit. John Currid makes the point that the Hebrew word relent, repent, regret, it doesn't always mean to change one's mind. That's often what it means. Once in a while in Scripture, I think maybe once in a common translation, this word can be translated to be moved to pity, to have compassion. That must be what it means. It can't mean that God changed, because He cannot. It must mean that He chose to have compassion in the face of the disaster that he had been considering or that he had, he had spoken about. And how do we know? Well, we know because the judgment that he spoke about in verse 10 does not come to pass. He does not wipe out the whole nation. Now, he punishes them, and we'll get to that in future weeks. He does come down with punishment upon them, but that punishment was tempered by the mercy of God. It was tempered by the loving kindness of their Lord And it was a mercy and a loving kindness that came because of the pleadings of their covenant mediator, Moses. That's where we'll turn and and spend most of our time now on these pleadings of Moses for mercy. First, before we look at the, the substance of his appeal Isn't it a bit presumptuous for Moses to step in and plead for the people? And look back in verse, uh, you can just jump back up. Verse 9, the Lord said to Moses, I've seen this people, it's a stiff-necked people. Now therefore let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them, in order that I might make a great nation of you. And we would expect the next verse to say, so Moses skedaddled out of there and got out of the way because he didn't want to be in the middle of that. But it says instead, but Moses implored the Lord. We don't read it quite the way it comes across for an original reader. Verse 10, where the Lord says, therefore let me alone, is... is, is in a way the Lord sort of giving room for Moses to appeal to him, to plead for something. One commentator says, God has vowed the the severest punishment imaginable, right? Back there in verse 10, that my my wrath may burn hot, that I may consume them. He's, He's vowed the severest punishment imaginable, and then suddenly he conditions it on Moses' agreement. So, so he says, you get out of my way so that I can do this. And in a way he's saying, hey, if you will step out of my way, I'm going to do this. It's, it's kind of like he's saying, but, but if you want to stick around and talk about this, we can. Let me alone that I may take them to task. But Moses implored the Lord. He, he did not let him alone. He stayed and pleaded with the Lord. Before we get into the the details, I know I keep telling you that. Notice this, that Moses does not plead anything of merit on behalf of the people. 
Lord, I know that you really want to burn them up with your hot wrath and consume them so we can start over again. And, and if that's what you're going to do, I'll get out of your way. But they're really not that bad, are they? It's just a little idle. You know, you only just told them about this rule. How can they be expected to obey? They're not that bad. The people have nothing to offer but but rebellion and idolatry. Nowhere, nowhere in his appeal does Moses plead anything on the basis of Israel. He, he does not attempt to justify their sin or their wickedness. John Curd says, this is because they are unjustifiable. You know, how often do we come to God, even as His children, already redeemed, just like they were, and we plead to God that He would change our circumstances because, Lord, I've just been through so much. Won't you just change this? I, I've been working really hard. Can you make things just a little bit easier for me? We're going to talk about it when we get towards the end. Our prayers ought to be based always, just like Moses' prayer here, in the mercy of God and in, and in the immutable character of our Lord. Moses rather pleads for the mercy of God on the basis of his character and promises. Don't miss the irony here either of Moses the mediator who pleads for the people while the people are oblivious. What about this Moses? He's gone. We'll start over fresh with Aaron and a new God. They're oblivious, they're rebellious, and yet their mediator goes and pleads for them. It's not their goodness that he pleads. It's not their faithfulness. We'll see it. It is the faithfulness of God that Moses pleads. Ligon Duncan says the point then is not that Moses believes he can somehow change the secret will and plan of God, but rather that God is consistent in the way he deals with us. Moses' argument Moses' argument appeals to who God is. And he comes to God. In a, in a way, God giving him the opening so that Moses' prayers may change his own heart as he appeals to the Lord on behalf of this rebellious people. He comes and he says, Lord, you can't do that. That's not who you are. And that's what he says, essentially. There's, there's really three main appeals in 11, 12, and 13. How does Moses appeal to God's mercy on behalf of the people? First, Moses appeals to God's decree of election. Look at verse 11. But Moses implored the Lord his God and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people, whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? We talked about it last time. You remember when the Lord spoke to Moses back in verse 7. You can see it. He in, he's sort of reporting on the events down at the bottom of the mountain. And what does he say? Go down, Moses, for your people, speaking to Moses, your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. 
Moses' first argument is to use God's words, but to flip them back to what they were in the first place. Lord, they're not my people. They're your people. These are your chosen ones. These are the ones that you chose and moved toward. The ones that you brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand. Moses pushes to the forefront this wonderful truth that we really have only gotten glimmers of in Exodus so far. That Israel is God's son. That that Israel is his. It's from Exodus 4, verse 22. You shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord... Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. And he did. He did. He refused to let Israel go. And so the Lord killed the firstborns of Egypt and brought his son out of Egypt. We don't have time to talk about how that connects to Christ in the New Testament. You can go, there's, your, there's some of your homework Out of Egypt I've called my son. Moses says, Lord, these are not just some people. These are not just some people that I sort of got together with on a whim and brought out of of slavery. These are your people. The ones that you have delivered from slavery and led out with great power and a mighty hand. And so in a sense, we may sort of add some systematic theology to it. Moses is appealing to the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. My preferred way to express that is the preservation of the saints. Simply that, that doctrine that teaches that God calls people to himself and he doesn't let them go. God's not in the business of calling people to him here and people to him here and maybe I'll let these go and maybe I'll let these go. When God calls, he keeps and they're his and he possesses them and he protects them and he draws them along. Westminster Confession of Faith 17, paragraph 2 says, This doctrine, perseverance of the saints, the preservation of God's people, depends not upon their own free will. Listen, but upon the immutability of the decree of election flowing from the free and unchangeable love of God the Father. Two unchangeable things. God's decree of election that those I have chosen, I will save. And His unchangeable love that is always seeking, always going after, always pursuing them and drawing them back to Himself, the ones He has promised to keep. Do you know that, Christian? Do you know that you're standing before God, that your safety in your salvation is not dependent on how you feel on any given morning? How wonderful is that? That I'm secure because God secures me, and so are you if you've trusted in Christ by faith. If you are His, nothing can take you. Nothing can snatch you out of his hand. Why? Because of the immutability of God's decree of election. That those he has set apart, he will save and bring to glory. And all the while we rest in the unchanging love of God our Father as he draws us along. Moses appeals to, to God's decree of election, of choosing these people. But the second thing we see is that he... He appeals to God's um, reputation 
or to God's glory? Look at verse 12. More questions. Why should the Egyptians say, with evil intent, did he bring them out to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Moses argues here that that destroying this people Israel would give the Egyptians ground for mockery. It was kind of woven in the midst of of the time in Egypt early on in, in the book of Exodus through the plagues and towards the end there as they actually came out of the land. Exodus 7, 5 records it. This, this idea that, that the Exodus was indeed purposed to bring God's people out of Egypt, but it was also to testify to the, those who were watching. Exodus 7, verse 5, The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. Moses says, are you going to mess that up? You've proven to them that you are the Lord. Will you set yourself up to be mocked by them when you destroy this people that you worked so hard to get? Alan Harmon says they would, that is the Egyptians, they would attribute to God an evil plan of bringing the Israelites out only to kill them in the mountains. Moses pleads there, Lord, maintain your glory for the sake of your name. Do not destroy your people. So he appeals to the election. He appeals to God's reputation. Thirdly, Moses appeals to the certainty of God's promises. Verse 13. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, or Jacob. Remember your servants to whom you swore by your own self. And said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven, and all this land that I have promised I will give to your offspring, and they shall inherit it forever. Remember, Moses says, remember the promises that you've made to the patriarchs, to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. You remember, go back and read Genesis 12 and 15 and 17, and remember the promises that God made to Father Abraham, that I will give you a people numbering more than the stars of heaven, and I will give you a land flowing with milk and honey to inhabit, and I will be your God, and you will be my people. And this is the promise that he has made. And Moses says, Lord, will you abandon the promise that you have made? Will you abandon the people of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel? This phrase, you know, we see it a lot throughout scriptures, Abraham, Isaac, and and Israel, or or Jacob, depending on what word is used at a given time. It's seen in many places. The last time that we saw it was in Exodus chapter 2. The very end of Exodus chapter 2. During those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning. God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. And God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. You think Moses is 
unaware that he's using this phrase again. The last time it was used was back just before the Exodus began. Lord, this people that you heard cry out and the promises that you remembered that stirred you up to come and deliver them, will you abandon them? Will you you abandon these people to whom you have promised deliverance and land and seed? Will you abandon them? Do you see that Moses is appealing to the mercy of God, to to the character of God, his own immutable self. But he does not change. Indeed, he cannot change. And Moses comes and says, you cannot do this thing that you have threatened. For if you do, you will not be true to what you have promised to accomplish. Before we finish, I want to make two points of application for us. First is this. Notice and pay attention to how Moses prays. To how he comes to God. Moses teaches us how to pray. You know, I'm not very good at praying. Sorry, I didn't mean to say that like it was a surprise. That should be very obvious. I don't think anybody's surprised by that. I'm not very good at praying. I reckon some of you would feel the same about your own selves. We often get prayer wrong. Our, our, our prayers are just sort of keeping up with a list of people and pets that are sick or wounded or don't feel good. And I'm not meaning to slight anybody that is in a difficult time with sickness or, or, or ill health. We, we are praying, and we want to see the Lord bring you through. But Moses teaches us how to pray. The first thing he does that we see is he prays God's words back to him. This is how we should pray. In the midst of our difficulties and our trials and our sicknesses, whoever they may be who are sick, we pray the words of God back to him. Lord, we are weak and needy. Take thought for us. He pray the words of the Psalms. You find for your Christian living those imperatives from Scripture that, that husbands, that you should love your wives as Christ loved the church, wives that you should submit to your husbands, you take those imperatives and you turn them back into prayers. You don't know how to pray to be a good husband or a good wife or to be a good son or a good daughter or a good mother or a good father. You take the imperatives of Scripture and you say, Lord, I don't know what this means or looks like, but this is what I would like to see in my life and this is what you have commanded. Now come and make it true in my life by your Spirit. We pray God's words back to Him. It's a conversation, you see. God has spoken to us in the Word and we speak back to Him that which He plants in our hearts. But also in our prayers, we should appeal to the character of God. We should appeal to the consistency of who God is. You know, we said he's not being fickle here, but he has has a purpose and an intention of sort of giving room to let Moses appeal so that he might show mercy. Ligon Duncan says, all of Moses' prayer depends upon God being reliable and consistent. And so we always appeal to him, Lord, you are good. Do good. Lord, you are just. Bring justice. Lord, you are merciful. Show mercy. 
Another thing that we see in, in how we should pray is when, when we come to God, we, we ground our prayers in the hope of God's promises and, and not in anything that we have to offer. You know, we might say, we don't bargain with God. Lord, if you'll do this, I'll do this. No. We come and we plead and we ask, Lord, you have promised to keep me to the end. Please keep me to the end. This sin that I struggle with, this difficulty that you put into my life, I don't think I'm going to make it. But Lord, you have promised you will see me through to the end. That you who began a good work in me will bring it to completion. Please, Lord, come and bring it to completion. You pray back his word and you plead his promises. We root our prayers not in our own character, but in God's character. In his immutable decrees of election, in his honor, in his covenant, in his promises, and all the things that he has given to us in Christ. There's a little bit more than just a, a picture or a list of how to pray. These points upon which Moses bases his arguments, they, they point us to Christ. They remind us of, of the better mediator, of the better intercessor. God's decree of election that he pleads to, we, we have a very clear, sure articulation of it in the New Testament. We know that we have been, been predestined before the foundations of the world that we might find life in Christ, we who were once dead. Go read Ephesians 1. You have a lot of homework tonight. I'm sorry. Go read Ephesians 1 and be reminded of what God has done for us in Christ. He pleads that the, the reputation of God and the glory of God that he might be upheld and not defamed, not profaned, not mocked. And isn't this what Philippians 2 speaks of? One day, every knee will bow on heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. In Christ, God's reputation will always find glory. Moses pleads the certain promises of God. And this is where you go and you remember, Christian, that if God has saved you, he will not let you go. You know, we don't have to fear the wrath of verse 10 because God has met that wrath out on Christ. We deserve that wrath. But Jesus stands in heaven, our advocate. 1 John 2, my little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin, but if anyone does sin... We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He's saying, but if anyone does sin, if you still struggle with sin, if you still fight, if you're still cold, if you're still dull, don't be afraid. Christ stands in heaven and intercedes for his people, saying, Lord, you have promised to be faithful and merciful and kind. Now dispose it on them for my sake, for I have paid for them. He stands and pleads the merit of his blood on your behalf, Christian. Jesus has paid it all. So be encouraged that God's wrath will not fall on you if you are resting in him. 
and be encouraged that, that God will see you to the end of all your difficulties and trials because he is merciful and faithful and for, for the sake of Christ, the Lord has relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. Holy Spirit, come now from heaven for the sake of Christ and help us that we may trust this good, true word that the Father has provided for us. We love you, Lord. We, we want to walk with you and trust you. Come and give us strength that we may do so. We're so glad for the gospel. Come and remind our hearts of it again even now and the rest of this week, that we may walk with you in, in joy and gladness. We may forsake our sin. We may know of your unchanging, immutable mercy and grace. Do it all for the glory of Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.